0: Our scripture reading is going to come from Exodus chapter 13. Uh, We're going to be reading verses 17 to 22, but that's just sort of the launch point for what we're going to be looking at today. So Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 to 22. Uh, Let me pray even before I read the scripture passage. Father, we thank you for the privilege of having your word We pray that you would give us such a measure of your Holy Spirit that we can understand your word clearly with deep comprehension, but above all, uh, trusting in your word and finding in your word that which feeds us spiritually, uh, completely, every day. Almighty God, you've given us many promises. You've given us much hope because of your word, because ultimately, Uh, Scripture all testifies to Jesus. Uh, We we so much want to see him in your word, that the word written would always present to us the greatness of the word incarnate, even Jesus, your son. Amen. (laughs) Exodus chapter 13, beginning at verse 17. Now, you can can sort of get the context immediately, As soon as it says, when Pharaoh let the people go. So you know this is right after the Passover, and the people are leaving Egypt. So when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up, went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth, and encamped at Etham, We don't really know these places. Now, archaeologists have discovered them. They have a good idea where these places were, but they're not familiar to us. But they're leaving uh, Egypt, uh, going to the east and going toward the southeast toward the Red Sea. But they're moving in this direction, and it says, on the edge of the wilderness, verse 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now, when we examine the Old Testament, when we're we're reading through the Scriptures, uh, and as we're doing this year, we're we're seeking to understand how the Old Testament Scriptures uh, have spoken to us, about Christ. And we're doing this because of what Jesus himself said uh, to to the Jews and especially to the Jewish leadership. In John chapter 5, he said, you search the scriptures because you think of them there is eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. That's verse 39. Then in verse 46, he says again, for if you believed Moses... Meaning, if you believe Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Now, there are several ways, then, in which the Old Testament, and especially the first five books of the Bible, speak about Christ. Sometimes there's a direct identification. For instance, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us that the offspring, the seed of the promise that's given to Abraham, when God said to Abraham, and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Well, the Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 says, and that seed is Christ. So we have a very specific identification of something that shows up in the Old Testament account, and we're told, the inspired Apostle Paul, learning this from Jesus himself, said, that very seed is Christ. Christ. Now, there are other kinds of identifications that we find. Of course, most of us are familiar with a lot of the the Messianic prophecy. Uh, It's been our custom here that during the Advent season, during those four Sundays, we will often uh, structure our worship service with many, many prophecies of the Old Testament that predict the coming of Christ. For instance, uh, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, 21 to 23, Matthew writes about this. Uh, The angel appears in Joseph's dream and says about Mary, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew goes on to write, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So we have the Old Testament prophetic witness that many of these prophecies are clearly identified in the New Testament. So there's prophetic identification in terms of Christ being mentioned or alluded to, referred to in the Old Testament. We also have types and shadows that show up in the Old Testament. Uh, And we've seen this. We saw this in chapter 12 of Exodus, because the paschal lamb that is sacrificed, whose blood was placed upon the side doorpost and the lentil, uh, signified what? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5 that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, therefore let us keep the feast. So we see that Jesus is presented to us in the Old Testament in types and shadows. In fact, if we go back to the time of Jacob, when Jacob is fleeing from Esau, when he's going to his uncle Laban, on the way there he stops at a place called Luz, later named Bethel. Why? Because he sleeps there for the night, and when he sleeps, he has this incredible dream. It's about a ladder, a stairway to heaven. And that stairway to heaven have angels ascending and descending upon it. And you go, wow, that's incredible. So we looked at him, we said, that's, a really, that's an incredible dream that he has. And he wakes up and he says, this place is an awesome place. The word awesome there means fearful. <laughs> it's a fearful place. It's a fear-inspiring place. This is like a holy place. This is the house of God. So he recognizes the presence of God there. Then Jesus, in John chapter 1, at the end of the chapter, he has this encounter with this this fellow Nathanael. And he says to Nathanael, I saw you when you were still under the fig tree. Meaning, Jesus saw Nathanael in a way that didn't involve his human eyes. He knew where Nathanael was, and there's so surprises Nathanael. And Nathanael Nathaniel expresses, wow, uh, you're the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel. And Jesus says, greater things than this you're going to see. You are going to see the angels of heaven ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. <laughs> Meaning that Jacob's ladder was an expression and revelation of Jesus Christ himself. Everything that Jacob's ladder meant is fulfilled in Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the stairway between heaven and earth, which is another way of saying he's the mediator. He is the bridge between heaven and earth. So when Jacob has this vision in a dream, Jesus says to Nathanael, Jacob was dreaming about me. That also is a type and shadow of who I am. Of course, that fulfills what Jesus said later. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, John 14, 6. Now, in all these ways, we have the Old Testament presenting Christ and who Christ is. So that, remember, the very first Christians were Jews. And the very first Bible that Christians had was the Old Testament. And even from the Old Testament, the very first Christians that uh, they're in Jerusalem... And even many of the people that Paul went to see on his missionary journeys, because many came to Christ out of the Jewish synagogues, they had the Old Testament first before the New Testament was written for them. And so they learned by reading the Old Testament what Jesus had said. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have everlasting life. But it is these that bear witness about me. Moses wrote about me. Types and shadows, direct identification, uh, and even messianic prophecy. So in all these ways, we have Christ presented to us out of the Old Testament word of God. Now, that brings us into the next part of the book of Exodus. What is happening now in the book of Exodus? Christ, the Passover lamb, symbolically has been sacrificed. That presents their redemption. They're being redeemed out of Egypt. They're being freed from their slavery and bondage. But the story doesn't end there. It gets a little more exciting. It gets a little more uh, interesting because what happens is Pharaoh is going to change his mind. Uh, He realizes he's let go all of these people. That's his workforce. And they have taken... uh, the, The Egyptians gladly gave them gold and silver. So they have... As it says in Scripture, they've plundered the Egyptians. And, of course, this is part of God's judgment upon Egypt, uh, a great part of his judgment upon Egypt, because they had had all of those opportunities, ten plagues God sends upon them, ten times God says to Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh has refused. So now we're at that period of time following this, in which God is now going to reveal himself in another way, Not just in the judgments, but in how he leads his people. The great truth, though, is that it's all wrapped up in the glory of God. And we'll see this. But the greater truth is this. That in seeing the glory of God as God is leading the people of Israel through the Exodus time, that glory of God, the New Testament tells us, is actually Jesus Christ himself. That's the great truth that we're going to see, and we're going to see this in terms of what the Old Testament says first, and then we're going to see what the New Testament says about it. Really, I have three big points, main points, main ideas. The first is this. We need to appreciate what the Old and New Testament say about the glory of God. That's the first and foremost. Then secondly, we're going to have to see how the this Glory of God is manifested to Israel during their wilderness wanderings. And then thirdly, how this glory of God by the New Testament is identified with Christ. Now, uh, if we understand that our, our deepest purpose as human beings is to know God, to love God, and to give God glory, then to find this identification between the glory of God and Jesus will only deepen our appreciation for what God has done for us in Christ. And hopefully, by the Spirit of God, move us to be more faithfully committed to Jesus. Now, begin with a proper understanding of this idea of God's glory. Um, the word glory is, in fact, uh, very difficult for us to comprehend in terms of what it means about God, now the Hebrew word—it's easy to understand. It comes from a, a root word that means weightiness. Uh, now, the, the the weightiness means um, how important the person is, um, and we can sort of see this. It's kind of a metaphor, right? Um, we say, uh, you know, that person has substantial wealth. Substantial wealth in many cultures—that is. Wealth that has a lot of weight because in the ancient world you measured your wealth by your gold and silver. So if you had a lot of weight, <laughs> you had a lot of gold and silver, you would be considered someone of great importance. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, the word actually means something like reputation. So uh, the, the word refers to somebody's reputation per se. Again, pointing to someone's importance. and And we recognize this. We say... That man has a very strong and powerful and, and great reputation. But then we can also say that person has virtually no reputation at all, meaning no, no importance. Which tells us something about Jesus did when Paul talks about him in Philippians chapter 2. It essentially says that Jesus made himself of no reputation, meaning from the glory that Jesus had when he came into this world, he took the lowest form servants in the ancient world were people of virtually no reputation, no importance. So it speaks to that. Now, the glory of God, though, when we look at it, can be understood in three ways in the Bible. There's God's essential glory, first of all. And there, the word glory captures God's importance. How significant and important is God? God. The importance of God is wrapped up in who God is. I am that I am. It's wrapped up in the fact that all of God's perfections are the greatest that we could possibly imagine. God's glory is the sum of all of his perfections. But that glory is so great that the Bible tells us that no created being can ever gaze upon the naked glory of God and actually live. Um, let me show you a couple of verses that say that. In 1 Timothy 1.17, Paul is celebrating God as the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Um, we all live in the light of the sunshine from our sun, that fiery star that's 93 million miles away from us. That sun gives biological life to this planet, all right, in terms of physics and biology. We live in the radiance of that light but we could not put ourselves at the surface of the sun and survive. It would consume us. So the very thing that gives us light at 93 million miles is the very thing that would destroy us if we were in the immediate presence of the sun. Now, that's an analogy. But it's like the very nature of God's essential glory. It is so great that no created thing can actually be in the immediate presence of the glory of God without being annihilated, without being thoroughly, thoroughly destroyed. So that's the first aspects of glory. The Bible speaks about that. This is the ultimate reason why you worship God, because God is worthy of worship because of the greatness of who God is. A second way Scripture speaks of God's glory is in terms of giving God glory. Now, this equivalent is equivalent to praises and verbal recognition of who God is. But giving God glory is also something that God can do sometimes in terms of judgment. That is, He can actually do such things where He gets glory out of it. That is, His greatness is seen by what He does. Um, but to give God glory, in Psalm 96, for instance, verses 7 and 8. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the, Lord, to the Lord the glory due his name. So God is to be given glory in terms of our worship. But then I said God can also get glory by things that he does. And coming back to the Exodus story, uh, we see this. God gets glory out of what he does with the Egyptians. In Exodus 14:17, uh, we have uh, the Israelites at the shore of the Red Sea. We have the Egyptians pursuing them. And then uh, the sea opens up. The uh, Israelites are passing through. And then we read what God says, Exodus 14:17, And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them you know, the walls of water are standing. They will go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And of course, what happens is they enter in after the Israelites, and the waters close in upon them, and they're judged and drowned in that event. Now, the third manner is what's going to be most significant for uh, what we say for the rest of the message. The third way in which God's glory is treated in the Old Testament is what we could call God's glory manifested. So if the first is God's glory in his essence, his essential glory, which we can't see, but it's the reason for which we worship him. And if the second is God's glory as he receives glory from human beings... The third glory of God is God's glory manifested. It's the way in which he actually reveals his glory uh, to his people. And we begin to see this in the narrative of what goes on. Uh, All throughout the next forty years of Israel's wanderings in the distance, in in the distance, in the desert, they're wandering, they're going to have God's glory manifested to them in a very particular and identifiable way. So we'll move on to the next point. How does God manifest his glory to Israel? Um, There's actually a development here. It doesn't all happen in one stage. There's several stages to this that we can look at. And the first begins with this. God manifests his presence, first of all, his presence, in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Uh, so in our text, uh, chapter 13, 17 to 22, we read in verse 21, God went before the Israelites by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night and a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. So this pillar, day and night, demonstrated God's presence with his people. Then moving into chapter 14, uh, where Pharaoh where realizes that he's going to regret letting the Israelites go. It's pretty much the support of his economy. Um, so he goes after them with his army. Uh, we read that the pillar now comes to protect the Israelites from the Egyptian army. So Exodus 14, 19 and 20. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of the Egyptians and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So God put himself between the Egyptian armies, and the host of Israel, all during that night before they were going to cross the Red Sea and the next morning. Now, we notice that Moses uses the title, the angel of God, in the same way he used the angel of the Lord. And the Hebrew grammar there puts these in what's called an appositional position so that it's the angel who is the Lord, and the Lord, who is the angel. So that's what it means. It's God revealing himself in this way. Now, the pillar then. It was leading them. Now the pillar is protecting them, and it stops the army of the Egyptians from attacking them. We go on to verse 21 in chapter 14. Moses parts the Red Sea. God, through Moses, parts the Red Sea, but he uses Moses. The staff raised the Red Sea parts. All the Verse 22, all the Israelites go across the seabed as if it were dry land. And on both sides, the water stands up like a wall on the right and on their left. Verse 23, the Egyptian army. With all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen, they chase after them. They also run into the seabed with the water on both sides attempting to catch the sons of Israel. But then verse 24, And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us free flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. They attempt to reverse their course, but God has Moses stretch out his hand with his rod, signals the waters to come together. So verse 28, we read, The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. God manifested to the Israelites his presence in the cloud, and in the fire. But now the next stage, the Israelites are going to move through the desert for uh, a period of time until they come to Mount Sinai. There is where the pillar of cloud gets connected directly to the glory of God. This is chapter 16. It's a full month later. Uh, All of the congregation traveling in the desert. They begin to complain against Moses. This is one of the ten times they complain against Moses. Amazing. God gives ten great judgments against Egypt. And what's the response of the Israelites? Ten great complaints against God through, against Moses and Aaron. Uh, it doesn't quite correlate to people really trusting God who's revealing himself to them. So we come to verse 3 in chapter 16. And Moses and Aaron basically hear this from the Israelites. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, in response to this, in response to this complaint, grace. What kind of grace? Grace by which God is going to actually feed his people in a tremendously miraculous way. Now, it's not to say that the grace comes and and God isn't bothered some by by the complaining. Oh, he's, he's concerned about this. But in spite of recognizing that they're being so unjust to him, unfair to him, untrusting to him, they're complaining when they should be trusting. In spite of all that, God chooses to take care of his people. He's going to feed them by giving them bread from heaven. So we find the story now, the giving of the manna. Exodus 16:7 Moses says, "In the morning, now, the giving of the manna, listen how it's described. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he's heard your grumbling against the Lord. What are we that you grumble against us?" Now, then in chapter 16, verses 9 and 10, Moses and Aaron M- Moses says to Aaron, "Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord for he's heard your grumbling." And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. So now we're seeing that this cloud that had represented the presence of God is taking on a further dimension. It's representing the glory of God. Now, Moses doesn't tell us what this glory looks like. Uh, You can read all the way through, and you don't get a specific graphic description of the glory of God in terms of what it looked like. But we often will read about what the glory of God did to the people of Israel. Uh, The Israelites could look to the pillar. They could see the cloud. They could see the fire. They could sense the presence of the greatness of God there. We move on to the third phase. Mount Sinai. This begins the third month of their New Year calendar. Here, the glory is going to be manifested in the fire and smoke that appears on Mount Sinai. So, in that chapter, chapter 19, God says this to Moses Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear what I speak, and you may also believe forever. So, the people are to consecrate themselves, they're to get ready for what's going to happen. Verses 16 to 20. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Now that's significant. So the glory of God, when it's manifested, the people of God begin to, as it were, tremble. It, in some sense is disturbing, even though in another sense, it's reassuring. God is really here. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in a fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. Now in terms of what we're reading in Exodus, chapters 20 to 23 will present the giving of the Ten Commandments and then some other kinds of laws and then some extensive uh, regulations and 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 stipulations about how the people of God are supposed to conduct themselves, uh, all the way through 20, 21, 22, and 23. So really, that's that's a kind of a parenthetical point in terms of the narrative. The narrative gets picked up again in chapter 24, verse 12, where Moses again repeats the fact that he's summoned by God up to the mountain. Verse 12, come. Up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So, verse 15 tells us Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of Uh, The glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses stays on the mount for 40 days. Now, we know the story, sad story. While he's up there on the mountain during those 40 days, what does Israel do? Well, who is this Moses? We haven't seen hide nor hair of him for weeks now. Uh, So they start telling Aaron, Uh, look, Aaron, give us something to worship. Aaron creates the golden calf. And the people are unfaithful to God while Moses is there. It's the whole awful episode of the golden calf. But then another stage of the manifestation of God's glory begins. This is in chapter 33. 33. Moses there begins to explain uh, how the glory of God is connected to and manifested in the tent of meeting. This is another kind of almost parenthetical kind of several verses here, 7 through 11. Now Moses used to take the tent. This is before the tabernacle is actually described and given. So this is just a tent. He used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would take his stand at the tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. This is verse nine. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, and all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now the reason why this is given to us here is because of what's going to happen next. So we see the tent of meeting, we see the glory of God in the cloud coming down upon the tent of meeting. And Moses meets with God this way and speaks to Moses face to face. But what does this do to Moses? That's what comes next. Moses prays to see the glory of God. This is also in chapter 33. Moses tells us that he has experienced God. He has spoken to God, man to man, as a friend speaks to a friend. No other prophet and the rest of Israel ever has that kind of an intimate friend-to-friend relationship with God. This is a daily thing for Moses over the next 40 years. No other prophet ever had a daily, day-by-day revelation ever. Moses is the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. There's no question about that. What Moses experiences is of a greater relationship with God than any other Old Testament saint. What does this do to Moses? It makes Moses spiritually hungry for more of God. He wants more of God, so he prays this prayer, Exodus thirty-three eighteen, please show me your. Glory. This prayer, this hunger to have more of God, to know and to experience God more deeply, more intimately, this pleases God. What Moses is asking here is that he wants to experience the essential glory of God, he wants to experience God as God is in himself. He really wants to know God in that depth. Moses wants to be shown the ultimate greatness of God and the very nature of who God is. But of course, God has to respond in a particular way. Verses 19-24, through Moses says this, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or I am that I am and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But God said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live, which is to say you can't see my essential glory and still live. But here's what God says. Behold, There is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back. You shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. My Hebrew professor, in describing this to us, said, it's as though God is saying, you can't look upon me in a naked kind of way and live. I will pass by, and when you look, you will see my after effects. You will see what happens when I pass by in the nakedness of my essence. And what you see, the glory that comes because of my passing by, will be manifested to you. You can't see my face directly, but you can see my, quote, back, my backside, the, the after effects of my coming this close to you. And so that's what Moses experiences. And it tells us no man can see the essential glory of God and live. So he says to Moses, you can't see more of me in this way, but you can see my glory as it's manifested Now, what's the spiritual lesson here? The more you pursue God, and the more you come to know God, and the more you desire to know God, the hungrier you are for God. It's just a simple truth. It's a basic truth of the spiritual life. The more you come to know Christ the more you will hunger for more of Christ. Now, what happens to Moses out of all of this? Well, we see the glory that's manifested now becomes a glory that's actually reflected in Moses himself. So Exodus 34, 29 to 35, and Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the Moses. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. And afterwards, all the people of Israel came near. He commanded them all that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai, When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. But when he came out and told the people what the Lord had commanded, uh, the people would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face until he went in to see him again. Now, there's an obvious spiritual lesson. The closer you are in coming to know God, the greater you will reflect God. Moses, speaking face to face, began to reflect in ever-increasing ways the, the glory of God. His skin actually shone. Moses was radiating the glory of God. Now, I don't expect any of us to have a Moses encounter because that was unique. But what is this telling us as Christians? We are to radiate something of the glory of Christ in how we live. And that's related to how deeply we go into knowing and pursuing Christ and the knowledge of God. Now, the sixth stage in this, how the glory of God is manifested, is when the tabernacle is completed. This is chapter 40. You know, God gave Moses incredibly particular, specific instructions how this tabernacle is supposed to be instructed, because it's going to be his tent. It's going to be where he's going to dwell. Now, what's interesting is that on the very first day of the first month, as they begin year two, so on the anniversary of when they started their new year that God gave them, on that very day, year two, day one, the tabernacle is finished. Verse 17 and 18 of chapter 40. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, The tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. Now this tent actually becomes the new tent of meeting. We read that in verses 34 to 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys... Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people would set out. The people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day it was. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night inside of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. One last thing in terms of understanding the glory of God and his presence with his people. Eventually, you know, the people of God go into the promised land. They establish their nation. Jerusalem becomes their headquarters, their capital city. David wants to build a temple for the Lord, but he doesn't. His son Solomon does. It's 480 years after this tabernacle in the desert had been erected. The the, the new temple is finished. And on the day when that temple is finished, 1 Kings Chapter 8, 10 and 11, we read this. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God's glory, God's presence filled the temple. It filled the house of the Lord. Just like what happened with Moses now happened during the time of King Solomon in terms of the temple that had been built. Now, before we leave this, let's understand how the Jews and the first Christians understood this, who were also Jewish. They described this glorious presence of God as we have just read it in the Exodus uh, passages that we have quoted. They described this with a term that's not found in the Old Testament, just like we use the word Trinity, a word that's not found in the Bible. Uh, The word they used was the word Shekinah. And the word Shekinah means the one who dwells. Uh, The Jews then and and the Christians too began to use this term to speak of the glory and presence of God as he manifested himself throughout Israel and especially in the tabernacle and then in the temple. So the people of God would refer to the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, That was the Shekinah glory of God. Now, finally, New Testament. That understanding, Shekinah glory of God, that the Jews recognize the glory of God as manifesting God's glory in his presence, shows up then in a number of ways in the New Testament. We're just going to look at John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, which we read as our introductory passage this morning. In that passage, we should read this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us for a while. The word dwelt there in Greek literally means pitched a tent, which is why some translations go this way. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us for a while, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then down to verse 18, the gospel writer says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Now what is John saying? What is the New Testament saying? Jesus is the Shekinah glory of God. When He came into the world... He was God in the flesh. The word of God made flesh. And the apostles say, we beheld the manifested glory of God in the person of Christ. As we came to know him, we came to know the Shekinah glory of God in human form. Not in a pillar of cloud, not in a pillar of fire, Not that which uh, dwelt in the temple first, or the tabernacle first in the temple. We knew the Shekinah glory of God in the person of this one, Jesus. What does this do for you? To know Christ is to know God's glory manifested in His Son. To know Christ is to know the fullness of who God is in bodily form. To know Christ is to know that the one who came into this world and suffered and died upon the cross, like the Passover lamb bearing your sin, was none other than the full expression of the glory of God. What did God give? To buy your salvation. What did God give to redeem you? The blood of bulls and goats? No. The precious blood of His only begotten Son, who is Himself in all His fullness, the Shekinah glory of God. Do you think God loves you? You were bought with a price, you were bought with a very Shekinah glory of God who came into this world to make himself of no reputation that he might be the very lamb slain for you so that you might know him the one who is the very glory of God. All of this to tell you trust Jesus. He is everything you need for now and for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we can hardly even comprehend the greatness of your Son. But please, give us more of Christ and giving us more of Christ make us hunger even more. Help us to know the Son of God is our sufficiency for everything. Help us to trust Him and Him alone completely for our salvation. And not only for that life which is eternal, but even the beginning of that eternal life right here and now. Help us to trust Jesus for everything in every way we pray. In His own great name, amen.